Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Well, good morning, Springs Church. It's a blessing to be with you. How much have you guys enjoyed the summer fellowships these last couple of months? What a blessing. It was so nice to uh, have everybody kind of jammed in the house together in one service and uh, outside sharing pizza and having a great time. So God's blessing was definitely on that. So uh, one other quick announcement that I don't think was in the videos. For those of you that are not members of the church yet, or those of you that maybe have questions about what it means to be a member, uh, what are our core values, where do we take a stance on scripture, and all those, all those great things, we have a, a Connect class, we call it Connect Sunday, happening during the 11 o'clock service. So right after this service, if you go out my left, your right, into classroom one, I'm looking at Andy, classroom one, um, Elder Andy and Tim Cohen, one of our deacons, and Pastor Dave uh, will be leading a Connect Sunday class. We want to invite you guys to come, and I think they'll probably have some refreshments and things in there, and we'd love for you to ask all your deep theological questions. Elder Andy is ready for that. Uh, so you guys make sure you uh, pop over for that. Amen? Well, we are going to continue. Uh, if you remember a couple of months ago, Pastor Michael started a series um, on the life of Moses, so we're going to continue in the life of Moses, and I want to talk this morning about the heart of intercession. So we're going to get into Exodus chapter 32. And I know we've been standing for worship, and we turned around and did high fives and all that good stuff, but can I ask you to stand one more time? We're going to stand as we read the Lord's Word together. So I'm in Exodus 32. And I'll be reading from uh, verses 30 to 35. And so it says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, I'm sorry, now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. Well, Father God, we celebrate who you are in this house we're thankful for an opportunity to join together in song and just lift up wonderful truths about you to build faith and to stir hope inside of us. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to meet with us now, draw near in your presence and open our hearts and anoint our hearing to receive what you would speak from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We can be seated. Thank you. We know the story of the Israelites and how the Lord delivered them out of Egypt. And uh, I think it's eight or nine uh, sermons now that we've been following Moses and talking about the life of the Israelites. Uh, where we are in this passage is that 
the people had heard the testimony of God. He had given the Ten Commandments chapters before. And the people had heard what God had spoken. He, he reveals himself through a law which teaches us about his character. When he says things about not stealing, when he says things about not committing adultery, what we learn from that, number one, is that the natural propensity of our hearts is to do the opposite, and that's what sin is. But in that same place, we get a chance to understand the holiness of God. And so he's delivered the commandments to the people. And the Bible says that with one voice, they all heard the commandments of God and they said, we will obey. There was an exchange. There was a place where God laid down a command and the people said, we will obey. The Lord had descended with thunder and with smoke. And it says that they trembled at the sound of his voice. They had encountered the presence of the Lord and the holiness of God. And they said, we will obey. And so you flip to the passage that we're in, and we find that Moses had been away with the Lord on Mount Sinai. He's receiving revelation from God and instruction for the people. And while he's gone, the Israelites lose their minds. <laughs> they get tired of waiting. They start saying, where is this Moses? And they kind of crowd around Aaron. And in his weakness, he caves. And he says, give me all your jewelry. Because they said, make us gods. We're tired of waiting on this Moses. So the jewelry that the Israelites were wearing was supposed to be a moment of remembrance for them. When they left Egypt, the Bible says they took plunder. It was a wonder of God that not only did he deliver them from Egypt, but the Egyptian neighbors actually gave them jewelry and gave them clothing and said, get out of our nation. We can't handle these plagues. Take this and go. And so they have all this jewelry on and all of these fine things on, and it went from being a remembrance and, and a, a moment of remembering what God had done to now being an object of worship for them. They give it all to Aaron. He puts it in the fire, and, and he melts it down, and he molds it into a golden calf, and he says to the people, here is your God. Here's the one that delivered you. A weak moment for Aaron. So in a short time, we go from saying we will obey to being lost in an egregious sin. What I want to talk about today is the church's role in the middle of that dynamic. I want to talk about the heart of intercession. And if nothing else that I say makes sense today, here's where we're going. For those of you that are note takers, the main point and, and the simple message is this. If we cease to intercede, we cease to be the church. If we cease to intercede, we cease to be the church. When Moses comes back, he begins to model for us what it is to be an intercessor. And an intercessor just simply means someone who, who goes and pleads on behalf of someone. And you might be saying, well, I don't, I don't know that I have a gift of intercession. I don't, I don't pray like Miss Jan or JD or Keith. I can't, I can't lead a prayer meeting like Pastor Dave. I, I don't think I have a gift of intercession. And, and what I want to encourage you with is that we're not talking about a gifting. We're talking about a burden. We're talking about someone who spends time with God and learns to love who he loves and learns to love how he loves you're not going to spend time with God and not develop a burden for someone. And so Moses comes back and he comes down from the mountain with a burden for the people. He sees the wickedness. He sees the sin they've committed. And he tells the people, he confronts the sin and he says, you have sinned a great sin. And that's an important mark for an intercessor. We're not here to excuse the person's sin. We're not here to pacify their sin. We're not, in some sense, trying to block God away from them, don't harm them. You begin by confronting the sin. There has to be repentance if we're going to meet God's mercy. So Moses confronts the sin directly. 
And you might question, well, in Moses' place, in his leadership, he's been very clear to lead the people through what God's intent was. We're going to a promised land, and here is the road God has marked out for us, and we've seen his deliverance and his miracles and his wonders, and the people have rebelled. And so where does Moses get the patience to go and intercede on their behalf? He says to them, I'm going to go to the Lord on your behalf. And you begin to question, well, where, where does he get the patience for that? And I would suggest to us that coming in to intercede on behalf of someone else, you only find the strength to do that when you know God's mercy in your own life. So Moses is asking something impossible of God based on his own experience. I remember when I needed the Lord's mercy. I remember what it was for him to forgive me when it seemed impossible. And from the strength of that, I go and I ask mercy on behalf of Israel. Moses goes and he brings an honest confession before the Lord. They have sinned a great sin, creating gods of gold. He doesn't sugarcoat it. We know that we've blown it, Lord, but I know that you are a God of mercy. Would you extend forgiveness to the people? He begins to identify with the burden of the Lord, even offering himself. He says, if you won't forgive them, blot my name out of your book as well. The Lord rejects him. He, he basically says to him, you know, he receives the intercession, but he basically says to him, whoever is the one that sinned is the one I'm going to blot out. In other words, your blood is not sufficient to atone for them. Moses' blood couldn't even atone for his own sin, let alone a nation. But what the Lord had in mind was a plan that was established before the foundations of the world, that there would be one greater than Moses. There would be one greater than the prophets. There would be one greater than the apostles. There would be one who would be pure and holy, who could stand in the place of all sinners for all time, and he would be the atonement. So he says to Moses, the one that sins is the one that will die. Now we've got the full measure of time, and we can see where the Lord was leading with this, but here Moses is in a place of brokenness before God interceding for the people. So what we see with Moses is, again, the nature of intercession is knowing God's heart of mercy and from that place, boldly pleading on behalf of others. If I had to summarize this little passage quickly, I would say that it's it's really three things. You've got the sin of Israel, the intercession of Moses, and the faithfulness of God. So even in this place of Israel having been caught in their sin and Moses going and interceding for them the best that he can, And the Lord says, we're still going to have to deal with consequences for the sin. You've offended a holy God, and there are still going to be consequences. But in his faithfulness, he tells Moses, continue on with the plan. Go along just as you were. Continue on to the promised land, and I'm even going to send my angel ahead of you. And it was a visible reminder that God's promise and his plan were still intact for the Israelites. Again, our main point today is if we cease to intercede, we cease to be the church. And what we learn from Moses, again, is first knowing the heart of God, experiencing his mercy in our own lives, and taking that as a catalyst, as an impetus to go forward and intercede on behalf of others. So I have two thoughts about this, um, and, and we'll walk through those together as we go. I want to share a story that I ran across as I was praying and and studying for this. Um, It's been 20 years, over 20 years, since the story of someone named Ike Brown um, broke into into the Florida courtrooms. He was a police officer for over 38 years in Jacksonville, Uh, family man, 
and uh, loved his, his wife and his children. And he had a son named Ike Jr. Ike was about 21 years old, and he went with his best friend to go over to another friend's house to play video games. Innocent, nothing wild or crazy going on over there. Uh, so he and his best friend go, and they're playing video games with this other friend, and a fourth person shows up that, that knows the homeowner. Ike Jr. doesn't know him, but they're all sitting around in the room. And the three of them are playing video games, and this fourth person is sitting behind them. And in a moment of demonic rage, just unleashes a random attack and starts shooting everybody in the room. The friend that owns the home survives. Ike Jr. and his best friend do not. And so Ike Sr. gets a knock on his door in the middle of the night. It's his chaplain, his lieutenant, his chief. They all come in and, and have to deliver the news that his son was, was killed that night. So it's a devastating story. A police officer who, who served and protect and worked to guard against these types of atrocities all across the community. He worked the beat. And here his own son was taken from him in cold blood. So here's what's interesting about the story. He, he goes in and he sits in the courtroom listening after a couple of years when they go to trial. He's listening to all the deliberation. He's trying to figure out what the, the sentence is going to be. And they announce that they're going to bring the shooter in to sit and answer some questions from the judge. The shooter's name was Takoya. And they announced they're going to bring him in. And he, Ike begins to talk about this in his testimony. And he says, my mind was, was racing. I was flooded. I wanted to hate him. I wanted to be filled with rage for him. And when I saw him, I didn't know how I was going to respond. But he said, the second I laid eyes on him, when they walked him through that back door, I loved him. He said, I wanted to hate him, but I loved him. I wanted to be filled with rage, but I was filled with affection for him. And I didn't understand it. And he said he went home and he prayed to the Lord and he said, what is the matter with me? I want to hate this kid, but I love him. And he thought something was wrong with him. And as the trial went on, he even found himself grieving for this young boy who had no father. He went and petitioned the judge and begged the judge not to give him the death sentence. And the judge said, this kid killed your son. What do, you, what do you want me to make of all of this? Why are you doing this? The, Ike's own wife and children were angry at him. They said, we need vengeance. We need justice for our son. Why are you taking sides with the killer? So he, tell, he tells the judge and he tells his, his wife and his kids, he says, all I can tell you is that this is of God. All I can tell you is that God reminded me of when I was a sinner and I needed an advocate and he stepped in for me. So he pleads with the judge not to give the kid the death penalty he ends up getting life in prison. I think it's multiple life sentences. And even after that, I just couldn't shake what he was feeling towards this kid. Two years later, he writes a letter to the kid just expressing his forgiveness and beginning to tell him about the mercy of God and why he felt he needed to forgive. And little did he know, this kid, Takoya, was sitting in jail and he knew that the rest of his life was blown. He's gonna be in prison the rest of his life. And he had actually prayed and said, Lord, if you can be with me even in this, let the father write me a letter. So in his testimony, he says he reads the first line of the letter. He didn't even get to the, the, the second sentence, and he said the tone of the letter was so gracious, he put it down and he immediately gave his life to Christ right there in the prison cell. The mercy of God through an intercessor and that's not even it. He didn't even finish the letter. The end of it is where you're really not going to believe me. In fact, I put links, for those of you in community groups, there's links to the articles because I'm not fudging any of this. You guys can go read it yourself. At the end of the letter, the, the 
Ike writes to Tsukoye and he says, you know, as he's closing his letter, he says, listen, I want you to know the love of a father. Would you be open to me adopting you? So the kid that murders Ike's son gets an advocate, an intercessor before the judge. He saves his life from the death penalty and he gets adopted. He gets a father and he says, I just want you to know the love of a father. And they spend time together. He visits him over all these 20 years. He travels telling his testimony. He writes letters with Sequoia and they spend time together worshiping God and, and, and just folk and, and reflecting on the goodness of God in their, in their story. Can you imagine? And so a story like Ike's is hard to believe. It's hard to imagine where would someone get the, the, the heart of mercy for someone like that. I, I actually had to sit and wrestle with it. I thought, was, was he looking for a way to just get his son back vicariously through Tequoia? Was there, what a weird, what a strange dynamic. What a strange relationship the Lord has built. But I'm reminded of what Ike said in his story. His family was angry at him. His judge was confused. But he said, I just can't shake the memory of God's mercy towards me when I needed an advocate. And that's what it is to be an intercessor. We are full of the mercy of God. We are a gathering in this house of people who celebrate the mercy of God. And from that place, we go and ask the impossible on behalf of the sinner. Amen? Amen. The, the two points that I want to make concerning this, the first one has to do with the church being a house of prayer. We've just seen in Ike and in Moses this analogy of what it is to be an intercessor. And I want to give you a, a, a thought here that the high calling of the church, of all the things that we're commanded to do, we preach, we teach, we worship, we fellowship, we discipleship, all of the outreach, everything that we do, the high calling and everything pivots off of the Lord's command that this would be a house of prayer for the nations. We are a gathering of intercessors first and before everything else. And so again, if we cease to intercede, we cease to be the church. Now throughout scripture, we find that God's house is constantly called a house of prayer for the nations. He constantly calls it a house of prayer. If you remember the life of Solomon, who's Israel's third king, and there were a number of special things that he did, but the, the first big task that he had was he was to build a temple for the Lord. It was the first big thing he was given to do. It takes him about seven years. He's got partnerships with wealthy nations around him. He's got tens of thousands of Israelites contracted to go and do the work. And he's got overseers and, and foremen that are rotating people in and out. I think you work for like a month and then you get two months off so you don't burn out. And he's got stone cutters and special tools and budget was no issue. So he takes about seven years to build the temple. And then he calls the elders and the Israelites all together and uh, he's going to have a dedication service. And in the middle of the service, he's thanking God and, and they're dedicating things and he, his heart is struck. And Solomon, the Bible says, is the wisest king that would ever live. And so he begins thinking about the wonders of God. He begins thinking about God who created the universe. He put the stars in place. He created the sun and the moon, separated the waters and showed us the skies and the dry ground. He brought forth fruits and vegeta vegetation and all animal life forms, and he, he created us out of the dust and breathed his spirit into us. So you consider all of that, and then you look at this temple, and he says, could God really dwell in a place that I've built with my hands? There's got to be another purpose for this place. And his heart is struck 
And for the next 20 plus verses, he goes into intercession. He begins praying. He begins asking God, if the Israelites come to this place and they pray, if they lift up a prayer, would you hear their prayers and would you answer them? He says, if the Israelites sin against one another and they come to this house and they lift up a prayer and they repent, would you hear their prayers and would you forgive? If the Israelites are taken out and they go to war and they're in another nation and their hearts turn and remember this house and they pray from the battlefield, would you hear them and would you answer and give them favor? If they persist in their sin and they're taken away into captivity and someone in captivity from whatever nation they're in remembers this house and prays, would you answer that prayer? He says, even if a foreigner hears the goodness of God, hears the wonders of your name and travels to your temple to pray, would you answer their prayer? He spends the rest of his time in a place of intercession. And it shows us what scripture says time and time again, that of all the activity in the house of God, all of it's important, all of it's needed, but it all hinges on the fact that we are called to be a house of prayer. We're a gathering of intercessors, lifting up the nations. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple, he puts a stop to all of the activity that's there. There's busyness that's in there. There's people trading and, and um, lending at excessive rates and, and overcharging people for their animals for sacrifices. And there's all kinds of nonsense going on. And Jesus puts a cord of, of whips together. And you know the story. He drives everybody out of the temple. He pushes out the animals. He flips over tables of the money changers. And what does he say? It's written that my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. We hear it in Isaiah. I believe Jeremiah says it. Constantly we are reminded that God's house, his church, this gathering is to be a people that intercede for the nations. Immediately after Jesus drives everybody out of the temple, the blind and the lame come to him and he heals them. And it's almost like a little, a little sign, a little hint to us that I don't want us busy with the so-called ministry operations, all the busyness, all the things that we're doing. If, if we are not in this place interceding for the lost, if we're not in this place crying out, asking the impossible for those outside of our walls, we're missing something and we are ceasing to be the church. He offers healing to the blind and the lame almost as a reminder to us, this is what it's about. If you love me, you're gonna love them. Amen? So we cease to intercede, we cease to be the church. The next uh, thought that I just wanna talk through briefly um, is just related to the idea that we cannot let our hearts grow cold. It can be difficult to walk as an intercessor in this life. There are friends that I've prayed for for years, people that we love that are close to us, family members that are still addicted, still running from God, still resisting the mercy of God. And it gets very frustrating when you're sharing the gospel, you're counseling with them. They call you when there's a crisis, but then they won't come to church. They won't listen to the gospel. And, and it just, it gets difficult. And you get to a place where you just think, man, I, I'm just gonna have to let them go. And not in a healthy way. It's, it's in, a, in a place of, of anger, not God's heart. I, I, don't, I don't care what happens anymore. I, I can't carry you anymore. And, but what happens is the, the enemy uses that place of, of hardness 
that gets created in our heart. It's a place of bitterness, and he actually uses that distance from others to create a distance with God. Jesus says that in the last days, as lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. So when you look out at the culture, and you look at the, the demonic ideologies that are coming after our kids, when you struggle to have a, rela- a, a conversation with someone and, and there's, you can't even get to, to the gospel or to anything else because you're tripping over pronouns and everybody's offended and you're, you're struggling to, to just have a basic conversation. And, and I know th- these are deep issues and, and people are, are hurting and sorting through it, so I'm, I'm not making fun of anyone, but it, it's hard. You have to even convince people that they're human and not furries and it, it's hard to have a conversation. So you think it's hopeless. I, what could I say to them? I was on a trip to Phoenix a couple summers ago and uh, I was headed into a grocery store and there was a young guy about my age that was outside asking, uh, begging for, for things. And so I stopped to talk to him and he wanted some pizza and so we go next door and get him a pizza and it was gonna be like, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. And so I thought, I wonder if I could share the gospel with him. I wonder if he'd be open to it. So we're talking and uh, I, I asked him if he'd be open to prayer and he said, yeah, yeah, let's pray. So we, we're holding hands, we kind of shook hands and I'm holding his hand. Um, Anytime I do any kind of evangelism, I pray with my eyes open. So you guys think whatever you want. But I have my eyes open and I'm watching them. And, and as we're praying, uh, I'm just praying and I'm asking the Lord's mercy in his life. And I kid you not, he's asleep standing up. He starts melting like this and his knees are bending. He was a little taller than me and he comes to about here, knocked out cold. But he didn't fall over. So my first thought was, this preaching thing must not be for me. Uh, <laughs> But once I get over my insecurity, I start thinking, Lord, what is that? And so we pray, and I, I get him his pizza, and he kind of goes on his way, and he woke up like nothing happened. And what I learned was I started to see this happening. You see these, these videos online in San Francisco and in Philly, and the fentanyl crisis and, and the, the drug epidemic that's happening. When, when people are taking fentanyl and these, these horse tranquilizers that they mix in, they literally turn into zombies. And so they'll be walking across the street and just stop cold turkey and just fall asleep. That's what the drugs do to them. If they survive, if they even live to tell about it, it's one of the horrific effects. And they just look like zombies everywhere. So I'm bringing that up because you see something like that and you wonder, Lord, how am I even gonna preach the gospel if he's falling asleep? Like, it seems hopeless. The, the, the drugs that are, that are plaguing certain cities and the, the difficulty having conversations and the hard hearts, you give your life away and you quit your job and you, you go to a mission field or you go and do street preaching only to find the people won't receive the message and it feels hopeless, and your heart begins to grow cold. You see the Antichrist spirit getting a grip on the culture, and and it just begins to feel hopeless. How could I intercede? The people won't even acknowledge what sin is. I can't bring them to God. And you begin to feel hopeless. I had a a dream uh, a few years ago that I don't don't think the Lord will ever let me forget it, Um, but the short version is there was a preacher and he's standing next to the mouth of a huge cave, and there's railroad tracks running right into the mouth of the cave. And in the dream, I knew that this was hell. It's going straight into hell. And there are people coming down in, uh, in carts. They're all sitting in these carts, just kind of rolling into the cave, right into the mouth of hell. Just hordes of them, just coming in. And the preacher is preaching his heart out. The Lord can still save you. It's not too late. Repent, turn from your sin. His mercy, his blood will cover you. Just turn, it's not too late. And they're laughing hysterically, rolling right into the mouth of hell. 
And I, I just woke up feeling so burdened and, and so discouraged for that, that preacher in the dream. It wasn't anyone that I knew. But I just thought sometimes that's how it feels being an intercessor. It feels so hopeless. It feels like you're trying to drag them to God and they actually love their darkness. They love their sin. But Jesus warns us about this, and I think it's a caution for the church. He says that in the last days, lawlessness will increase. We will see the Antichrist spirit getting a foothold. You will see strange policies being pushed through. I read something about uh, in healthcare administration or something along those lines, and they're trying to get to where they can uh, provide some kind of coverage. Uh, essentially what the, the case is is that, that men who think they're women want to be able to breastfeed. So now we're dealing with just this depraved mindset and it feels so hopeless. And the tendency is to say, okay, it's just me and Jesus now. I, I don't understand how to love the others. I can't intercede for them. But what happens is when our love grows cold towards others, it creates a coldness in our hearts towards God. Why? Because Jesus loves the Gentiles. He died for every one of them. So he's not limited by our limits. That's why he says, before we go running out into a harvest, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. He's going to give us his heart. He's going to empower us with his strength. He's going to give us the grace to communicate and to minister in those impossible areas. And it's from his heart of mercy that we learn to turn around and intercede on their behalf. Amen? Jonah's life and ministry was, was an interesting one. I, I think about Jonah as kind of the ideal churchgoer. Jonah had everything that I think we preach about in the modern church. He, he knew who he was in the Lord. Every time they mention him, they say, Jonah, the son of Amittai. And so he can trace himself back to the covenant people of God. I know who I am in the Lord. He knew what his calling was. He was operating as a prophet. Even the, the surrounding pagan nations acknowledged this in him. Every time that he preached, there was repentance. So he's walking in his calling. Many of us are trying to figure out our calling. Elder Gary has been begging to take a sabbatical, and we're like, we don't have our calling yet. We need you to stay as an elder. And then he hears from the Lord clearly. We see a couple of times in his letter that he can hear from God. Now, he didn't always like what God was saying, but he was hearing clearly. And we spend most of our time in the modern church preaching about those three things. He's the ideal churchgoer. It would seem that he's got it all together in the Christian life. And yet the Lord prompts something in Jonah's heart and he sends him to the Ninevites. And it's unique because Jonah is one of the few prophets that God sends to a pagan nation. And typically the prophets from Israel go and they, they witness to the kings, they witness to the people of, of God. He sends them away to the Gentiles. And it's what we've been talking about. Jonah resists God and he runs from God. He, he doesn't wanna go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. That would be the nation that a few decades after Jonah would actually come and take Israel captive and march them out of the promised land. Jonah knew them as a pagan nation. He, he, he recognized they were not God's covenant people and he was indifferent to what would happen to them. Now just to fast forward a little bit, we don't really understand fully why Jonah was so reluctant until later in the book, he actually tells God, once the people repent, because you know, Jonah goes and he eventually preaches and he, and he shares God's word, and the people repent. Everyone from the king down to the animals, nobody eats, they fast. The Bible says they all fast and they repent, they turn from their evil, and Jonah gets upset about it. He actually says to God, I knew you were gonna do this. I knew you were gonna forgive them. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you were gonna show them mercy. That's why I didn't wanna go. 
And so the Lord shifts from Nineveh to dealing with Jonah. He begins to ask him questions. Do you really deserve to be that angry? Should I not show mercy? Should I not care that all of these people are going to perish in their sin? So he begins to expose in Jonah that the coldness in your heart towards the Ninevites is manifesting in a coldness towards me. You're angry with me for showing mercy. And so that is the tactic of the enemy. Well, as long as I've got my calling, as long as I know who I am in the Lord, I'm, I'm reading my Bible and I'm journaling. I got my favorite podcast as I'm driving. I got my faith together. But when we cease to have a spirit of intercession for those outside of this community, even for those that are in this community, maybe those that are hard to deal with and we need to endure and build relationships and love them, when we cease to have that spirit of intercession, it creates a coldness in our hearts and it becomes the tactic of the enemy to separate us from God. Can we see that? We, we visited a, a church... Uh, we were off on a mini vacation last week, just a staycation, and I told Danny, let's just take the girls to a church where we don't really know anybody and just see what it is like to be a new visitor at a church. We've been at Springs Church 12 years, and we, we love it. I just don't know how to be in church and not feel responsible for stuff. I'm like picking up gum wrappers and moving chairs, and I just can't sit. And so I was like, let's just go to a place where we're not known. And we were there for about nine seconds, and somebody goes, are you a pastor? I was like, all right, it's going to be like that, Lord? You can't give me a minute? Um, but we're, we're there and at the end of service we're talking with a couple of the volunteers and just a sweet fellowship we're hanging out with them and one of the ladies says to me you know we're, we're, we've been on the mission field this is our 50th year and we're getting ready to go and, and do a, a goodbye tour and we're going to release the churches to the local leaders and to the elders and then she gets a little misty eyed and she says you know the, the one thing that I'm still praying about of all we've accomplished in 50 years she goes I'm coming home to my son he's about 38 and he tells me that he loves Jesus but he hates the church and she's like, I just can't get him to reconcile those two things. And she's terrified that, that the enemy's going to use that to drag him away. And that's the deception that I'm talking about. There, there are some of us that maybe have been hurt in the church. We've been wounded. Maybe you've come from another church where, where it was appropriate for you to leave. I'm not asking for you to stay under abuse. Um, I've said this before, and it's still in my heart today. Even if you can't interact with people, maybe you need to put a, a boundary around you with, with toxic people. You can't interact, but you have to intercede. You have to keep a place in your heart that's soft and that's open to the mercy of God working in the people around you. Because once we lose that spirit of intercession, once we lose the heart of mercy for others, it begins to affect our own faith and our own walk with God. So as we grow in our love for God, we develop a spirit of intercession for others. What I'd like to do, uh, just closing a little bit early, I, I want us to take a moment and take communion together. Um, and I'll, I'll ask the, the worship team to, to come up and our prayer team. Um, if you didn't get communion on the way in, please raise your hand and we'll have uh, the deacons bring it over. Let's, let's stand together. I just want to reflect on, on a couple of things here. Um, as we said, when you lose the, the spirit of intercession, it has a, a negative effect on our, our walk with God, our connection with God. Um, the, the caution that the Spirit gives us is not to let our hearts grow cold. And we also understand that the church is a gathering of intercessors. This is a house of prayer for the nations. And so when we come together for communion, um, 
there are a few things that are important there. I want to go back to what we talked about in the start when we talked about Moses, and, and it says that he offered himself essentially as the atonement. Our tendency is when we get full of, of passion and zeal and we're burdened for the people, we do want to lay our, our lives down for others. We, we will sometimes stay too long and deal with narcissism and deal with abuses and things. Um, that's not intercession, right? We'll have to have another sermon to talk about boundaries and toxic people, and we'll pray through that. But the benefit of what we have that maybe Moses didn't know he had is that when we intercede, when we go to the Lord on behalf of others, we ask the impossible on behalf of the sinner, we actually plead the blood of Jesus over them. We're not offering ourselves to, to try and atone in that sense. We offer the finished work of Jesus and his cross. And so what I'd like us to do is we search out our hearts today. You know, when, when Paul uh, brought the people together for communion, he, he began to explain to them the importance of the, the body of Christ represented in the bread and the blood of Christ and the new covenant represented by the spilling of his blood. But as he gets down through his instructions and as he um, gets down to the end of, of what he's saying to them, there's a really important phrase there where he says, wait for one another. It, it's this reminder that it's not just me and Jesus. Moses went back to the Lord on behalf of the people and he could have probably gone to the promised land and it had just been him and God. And like, Lord, just let me start over. I've got my wife and my sons. We'll just start over and try with some more obedient people. But something in his heart, a place of intercession says, I need to wait for the others. I want to intercede and I want to see God bring them through. And in the context of communion, Paul was trying to get the people to stop being self-centered. Some of them were taking big old chunks of bread and drinking enough wine to get drunk and other people didn't get anything. And he says, this walk, this unity that we have in faith. It's about us being one. It's about us maintaining a softness in our hearts, a spirit of intercession for one another, because that's where the blessing of the Lord comes and, and touches our unity. And so there are two things that kind of came to my heart in prayer, and I was searching my own heart along these lines. Obviously, when we take communion, we're to humble ourselves and, and search the Lord's heart and, and repent of sin in our own lives. But there's another place where I'd like us to just ask ourselves the question, where has your heart grown cold? Have you given up on a prodigal? Have you given up on a family member? Have you been praying and interceding for that spouse, that, that friend, that coworker, that boss? And, and the more you pray, the worse they seem to get. Do you carry a burden for the agendas and, and the things happening in our culture? You're praying about the LGBT and, and, the, and the trans ideologies. You're, you're praying about politics. And the more you pray, the worse things seem to get. And you've lost the spirit of intercession. You, you, your heart has grown cold in that area. Would you ask yourself that question and search your heart and see what the Lord might say to you? And as we come back together in a few seconds to take communion, we're going to surrender that to the Lord. We'll take a moment and uh, we'll take communion together and, and then we'll close in worship. Father, we just take a few moments this morning to reflect on your love, your intercession for us, to reflect on your mercy, to celebrate your mercy in our own lives. We search our hearts, God, and we repent of sin, we repent of wrongdoing, we cling to your grace in our lives, and we thank you for the finished work on the cross that makes us new in you. God, as we ponder the, the points of this message and what I believe you're speaking, would you show us in our hearts where we have grown cold in our intercession? The issues of life, the agendas of the enemy, the, 
the sensing of hopelessness as we look at the different issues of the day, God, it has stopped up the flow of intercession for many of us. We have given up on prodigals, God. We've given up on the unsaved. We've given up on our street preaching. We've given up, and this isn't a place of us beating ourselves up, but God, we are asking for a fresh touch from you. We are praying to the Lord of a harvest and asking for you to refresh us now. In Jesus' name. Well, the word says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let us take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And let us take the cup together. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us reflect on this moment of coming to the Lord's table, remembering his own mercy for us. And from that place, finding the faith again, finding a refreshment again to plead on behalf of others because this is a house of prayer. If we lose this spirit of intercession, if we lose the heart of mercy towards others, it begins to cause a corrosion in the church, a decaying in the church. We cease to be the church. So let us wait for one another. Amen? Well, I wanted to end a little bit early to give us some time to respond in faith to what the Lord might be speaking to our hearts. We're gonna have a song of worship as we close. The prayer team is here. Some of our staff are here if you guys wanna come up. Uh, if you need prayer for anything regarding the message or otherwise, please come and um, connect with any of our, our prayer team leaders here. God bless you guys. Let's worship together. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.